1 Samuel chapter 25, looking at verses 23 through 44. And uh, as we've been studying this section, we have seen where David was fleeing from King Saul. And Saul later, out of his own mouth, admits, I have played the fool, I have erred exceedingly. And so the king fool, David was okay with. He was able to deal with him. And we saw David not repaying evil for evil. We saw David being kind and merciful and loving. He's such an example of Jesus as he dealt with King Saul. But he wasn't ready for Satan's attack from the back door. And all of a sudden, he gets offended by this guy Nabal, who should have honored David, said, Who is David? Who is his father Jesse? Far as I'm concerned, he's a runaway slave, and he's rebellious, and why should I help him out? And, And David snapped. And he says to the men who gave him that word, Put on your swords, boys. We're going to go and kill them. If there's one left in Nabal's house, God help me, and we're going to kill them all. He just flips. All of the kindness and the goodness and the love and the joy and not repaying evil for evil, right out the door. David was blowing it here. In Proverbs 16.32, it says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In Proverbs 25, 28, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. In James 1, verse 19 and 20, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And when these men came back and told him what Nabal had said, the insults he said about David, David was quick to speak. Strap on your swords, guys. We're going after him. And there we see his wrath, not going to produce the righteousness of God, but to produce the flesh of man. However, we see this beautiful gal, Abigail, Nabal's husband, or Nabal's wife. And uh, so Nabal was this foolish guy, but he had this exquisite, wonderful, wise wife. And she comes to meet David to try to hold him back from killing her husband and all the household. And in verse 23, Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet. So David's coming. He's furious. His blood is boiling. The testosterone is flowing from his veins. And, and uh, the adrenaline is pumping. And his eyes are bloodshot and popping out of his head. And smoke coming out of his ears. And, and all of a sudden he comes up over this hill. And er, here's this beautiful gal in this wagon full of supplies. And he stopped in his tracks. And soon as they Meet eye to eye. She quickly gets off her donkey. She bows down to the ground, showing a beautiful picture of humility. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we see here this beautiful clothing of humility, this beautiful heart of submission, And how precious in the eyes of God and man such a heart is. And then notice what she says in verse 24. On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. She takes the blame on herself. 
She's going to explain later that she should have been there and, and been the mediator between Nabal and these guys or should have been there to talk to these guys and steer them away from her rather foolish husband, Nabal. But in her mind, I should have been there and I wasn't. I should have talked to them and I wasn't. And the fault, at least in part, is mine. You know, it's interesting as we study through the Bible that godly men don't point the finger at others, but they point it at themselves. Because when our fellow man blows it, when our nation becomes wicked, in part we do share in it. We are not being the light we should have been. We're not being the salt we should have been. If we were the light like a city set on a hill that couldn't be hidden, then maybe the darkness that's rampant in our society wouldn't be there if all the Christians were really being the light, really being the salt. Salt preserves. You pack the meat in salt. It brings thirst. It brings flavor. If we had that Christian flavor in the world, if we were bringing the thirst, causing men to thirst for God, if we were being the Christians, causing the preservation, in part we have sinned as well. In Daniel 9, a man in the Bible that nothing uh, negative about him is pointed out at all, only righteousness. But yet when he prayed, in verse 4 and 5, he says, I pray to the Lord my God and made confessions and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and his mercy with those who love him, with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. So maybe we're not as wicked as the world, but we are wicked in that we are not living as we should in certain areas. We are sinning because we know how to be holier as God is holy, but yet we're not willing to submit ourselves and do that which we should do. And because we're unwilling to go all the way and surrender our lives to walk as Jesus walked, we are a part of the problem. In Nehemiah, We see him praying there in chapter 1. He says that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And so he makes it clear. And again, Nehemiah is one of these righteous guys. He's confessing the sins that happened um, before he was ever born. But yet the countries continue to sway from the Lord and he hasn't been the leader he should be. He hasn't stepped up and and been the person turning back the, the tide of wickedness as he should have stood up and done. And so in part, we all share in the sin of a nation. We sin, we've all sinned, we're a part of the sin of the failure for our families and our children and our spouses. In part, we are guilty for not praying for them as we should, not being the examples we should have been, not standing up for righteousness as we should have been. And of course, for a nation, the power lies with us. Evil is not more evil. Satan isn't stronger. It's God's people are weaker and not being the people of prayer they should be. In Second Chronicles 7.14, you know the passage. If my people will humble themselves and pray... God didn't say if the world will quit being as wicked, but if my people will get it, if my people will humble themselves and pray. It's amazing how the majority of Christians, I'm talking 99% of Christians, will not pray. 
They will not sacrifice themselves to come to a prayer meeting. They'll go to the orphanages. They'll pick up trash on the freeway. They'll do about anything and everything. But to make that sacrifice to pray, they won't do it. Our Sunday nights, we come and we pray. And I'll tell you what, often when I'm praying, I sense the responsibility as an American who has the keys to the healing of our nation to humble myself and pray. There's guys in our church that got to go to work. They got to be at work at 4, 4.30 in the morning. But yet they're here and they've been here for a decade praying, crying out to God in prayer. Great sacrifice many people make. But yet other people, it'd be a tiny sacrifice in comparison to what others are making. But they're still unwilling. We just sort of stand back and watch the news and watch our country go on a downward slide. And we like to complain about it and gripe about it and say, boy, things aren't the way they used to be when I was a kid. But they won't humble themselves and pray. And he says, if we will, then we will turn from our wicked ways. You will find that a strong prayer life helps you start living a more holy life. But also when you're in the presence of God, like Isaiah, you see things as they really are. And Isaiah, when he was in the presence of God, he said, I am a sinful man. I dwell in the midst of a sinful people and I'm undone. And when we come into a place of prayer and we come in the presence of God, we begin to see that those things that bothered us a little begin to bother us a lot. And those things where we erred some, we realize it's a lot more than just a little bit. We're erring greatly. And so as we put ourselves to prayer, we realize I can't press in until that sin in my life is dealt with. And then as we turn from our wicked ways, it's not as wicked as the world, but it's wicked for us. And then we begin to seek his face. There's intensity. Not a casual prayer, but one of intensity. We see that in Daniel. We see that in Nehemiah. These guys lived their lives for years knowing the destruction of their country and something clicked inside them. And they began to realize, no, it can change, it will change. Daniel had a prophecy from the Lord that after 70 years they would go back to the promised land. We have a promise right here that God will hear from heaven and heal our land. Nehemiah knew that it wasn't God's will for their walls to be torn down and the people not to be able to come and worship. And and he said, no, I'm not going to allow it to go on one day longer. And there is this intensity in their life where they begin to press in on the Lord. They begin to seek his face. And then it tells us that God will hear from heaven and God will heal our land. It's a promise of God. So when you see our nation, and as it's becoming more exceedingly wicked, now we're killing off those who are helpless. We've been doing it for decades to the unborn baby. But now we're doing it to those who are in comas. And, and we say, well, they're, they're breathing and, and they're making it, but let's go ahead and kill them off too. Let me tell you, we've opened a a door that is leading to complete destruction. And the power is in our hands. Samuel, when he saw the nation sinning, saying, we want a king like all the other nations, uh, Samuel said, I will not sin against the Lord by not continuing to pray for you. He saw that if he didn't continue to seek God's face for the healing of the nation, it would be sin. And I'm telling you, it's sin for us as well. 
And so we see her saying, you know what? The failure of my husband, I share in part. The sin against you, David, I also share in it. And there she came to repent before David. And then it tells her, it tells us there in, in verse 24 that then she says, please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Listen to her humbleness as she asks for permission to speak, as she begs him that, she, that he would listen to her. It says in Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer, what? Turns away wrath. But a harsh word, what? Stirs up wrath. We often know the power is right there. I, there's a little tiny spark and I could just dump a glass of water on it right now and just give a soft answer and just, it's over. But our pride, our arrogance says, no, I'm not going to let you talk to me that way. And no way, I'm right, you're not right. And boom, we pour a gallon of gas on it and we got this fire. And then before we know it, um, we're being devastated by this huge blow up, which didn't have to exist if we were not, if we were just willing to, to be gentle and soft rather than harsh and forceful. We see here in this discussion with David, six times she says, I am your maidservant. I'm just a humble servant of yours. Fourteen times she called David, my Lord. Not as in God, but as in Lord, as in authority. We find in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, And you likewise, how? Just as Christ went to the cross, you wives, without a word. Just like Jesus was a lamb done before his shears, said not a word. You wives also, without a word, watch God work in your husband's life as he observes your gentle and quiet spirit. As he observes your godly character, which is very precious in the eyes of God. Example of that was Sarah to her husband, Abraham. She called him Lord. Let me tell you something. Go back and read the story of Abraham. There wasn't much to respect there. He wasn't walking by faith. He was making continual horrible decisions. On more than one occasion, he asked her to lie about their relationship and deny that that she was his wife and just say that you're my sister. But yet, even in all of that, she continued to call him Lord. She continued to have a great honor and respect for her husband. And we see this same gentle and precious spirit that we saw in Sarah making Abraham this great man. Causing Abraham to be come from this uh, sneaky, deceitful guy to become the father of our faith. Because his helpmate was encouraging him and lifting him up. We see this same spirit now in Abigail as she's dealing with this fired up, angry, seething David. Again, don't picture David stopping going, oh, would you like to have a nice conversation? That'd be great. Here's some tea. Let's sit down over here and have some crumpets and tea. Now, what's on your mind, Abigail? That wasn't happening. David was angry. His face was contorting. This lady's in my way. Would you hurry up, would you? I've got to go. And the horse is bucking. You know, 400 guys behind going, come on, come on, let's go. And, and, and here she is trying to stop the madness of David and trying to cause him to not go and murder all of those who are of her household. And we see her humility. We see her soft answer. 
However, in verse 25, she didn't do everything right. In verse 25, it says, Please let my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, which means fool. And folly is with him. Foolishness is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So, first of all, she, she makes it clear. I'm going around my husband's back. He made it clear he's not giving you anything, David, nor your men. He does not, even though you helped out by guarding his sheep and he had the best year ever. He's not going to give you. But I'm going around his back and I'm going to give you something even though. That wasn't right. Secondly, she criticizes her husband. You should never criticize your spouse or your kids. Love covers the multitude of sins. It doesn't bring out. When you live with somebody in a household, you know all the dirt on them. And to joke about, oh, my wife's the worst cook in the world, or my husband's a slob, he never picks up after himself. Although it might get a chuckle, it's wrong. And it was wrong for her her to criticize her husband in this way. And then now, after confessing her sin, she sort of backs up saying, yeah, it was really mostly his fault, but, you know, I, I, I should have been there. And so she sort of justifies herself. But let's remember something, first of all. This was a life and death situation. She was desperate. And maybe at this point, although she was being humble and and she was saying the right things, David wasn't changing. His countenance didn't change. And so it very well may have been that she was saying things that would justify in David's heart, I know he's a scoundrel, but he's still my husband. And hey, and he's, she's begging basically for her husband's life. So let's remember this. So I think later on, if her husband said, yeah, I heard you call me a scoundrel, but you saved my life, you know, no big deal. Okay, so remember this was a life and death situation. But let's also just look at it for what it is. She's not perfect. She did things that are wrong. You know, when we read through the Bible, we often see failure, sins, in our heroes. It tells us that Abraham lied that Sarah was his sister. Not once, but twice. Making it clear, it wasn't a one-time slip-up. He struggled with telling the truth. We see Noah, after standing against the whole world as a righteous prophet and preacher for 120 years. But as soon as the Pressure was off and the vines began to grow. He made some alcohol and got drunk. Well, well, well let, me, let me justify this. We don't have to. The Bible doesn't try. It just says even though Noah was an awesome guy, he also sinned. Even though Abraham became a radical man of God, he also sinned. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. It doesn't try to clarify. It just said he sinned. What we find throughout the scriptures is that man, as wonderful as he may be, He also has some amazing character defects. As awesome as people may be, they still sin. And we shouldn't try to justify it. We just accept it for what it is. And you know what? You'd have a much happier relationship if you can do that. So often husbands demand of their wives to be perfect. So often wives demand of their husbands to be perfect. Parents of their kids or kids of their parents. Church members of their church leaders. Brothers and sisters in Christ of one another. And if you put your fist down and say, perfection or nothing, you will get nothing. The fact is, is even at our highest, best moments, 
if they knew what happened earlier that day or that next day or that night or that morning. You can't have this romantic view of them always being perfect because you know that even in the midst of being great, we still have definite problems, don't we? Definite issues, definite sins. It's not good. It's not right. They need to change. But we're never going to have a perfect spouse. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never draws a line and says, I put up with this not for weeks, not for months, but for years. I'm sick of it. I'm not going to stand it another day. Either change or get out. You're you're just going to lose that relationship. Kids that demand that of their parents, parents of their kids, you're you're just going to lose the relationship. And it would be better to have a difficult relationship than to have no relationship at all. It would be better just to accept, my dad is not the man he should be. My mom's not the woman she should be. My spouse is not the person they should be. My kids aren't the person they should be. But I'm going to make sure that relationship stands. And let me tell you, if you end that relationship, you will be the poor of it. It's better to have a whole bunch of friends that are struggling than to have a couple of friends that you don't know anything, hardly anything about, but they're perfect. The more the merrier, and it's true. You can't have enough friends. You can't have enough family. And if you draw the line and say, well, you know, my dad or my mom or my wife or whatever is this, and that's why we hardly ever talk. That's why we hardly ever see him. That's why, you know what? You're ripping yourself off. Because no one's ever going to be perfect. And if you guys are going into marriage thinking, oh, they'll eventually change. <laughs> you're, you're in for a rocky life. Go back to your high school reunions or college reunions. People pretty much to the core of their being remain what they are in personality. Now when we become born again, all the things become new in our spirit. But yet the personality and the, and the base of the core of who you are. I'm not saying we don't mature. I'm not saying we don't learn a lot and become wiser people. But basically what you see in people is what they're pretty much going to be the rest of their life. If they're funny at 8 years old, they'll be cut up at 18 years old and they will be at 80 years old. If a guy's serious at 8, he's probably going to be serious at 18 and serious at 80. People are pretty much who you see them to be. And you can just Learn to embrace that. Concentrate on the strengths that they have and enjoy the strengths they have. Or you can concentrate on their weaknesses and let it irritate you and grind at you until you eventually say, this person's so full of problems, I can't stay with them any longer. Well, you have blown it up because that's what you've concentrated on. Or you can look at their weaknesses and say, you know what, I'll just learn to compensate for those weaknesses. And we're gonna, I'm going to concentrate on the things that God's perfected in their life. I'm going to concentrate on the strengths of their character. And I'll compensate for their weaknesses. And by God's grace, as I continue to pray, they, they will change. They will grow. But don't count on it. But love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never stops. And so notice here in verse 26. Now therefore, she says, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. 
So she comes in and, and she says, oh, thank goodness that you're listening to me now. You have no idea how wonderful it's going to be that you're not going to do what you were going to do. In particular, the sin was avenging yourself by your own hand. The Bible is very clear at this point. The Bible David had said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. A man was not to take vengeance on another man. It was very, very clear. And David, you were getting ready to blow it, but you haven't. You see, we're all tempted. Tempting is not a sin. Jesus himself was tempted. And David is being tempted and his temptation was leading him closer and closer to falling into that temptation and making it a sin. But at this point, he hadn't. At this point, you're being heavily tempted. Everything says, you know, you're going to do it. But it hasn't happened yet. Hold on here. You don't have to go any farther with this. You can stop right where you're at right now. And then in verse 27... Now this is the present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord. Let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So she had to be very careful with this. She didn't want to make it look like a bribe. Here you are, big bully. Now leave us alone. She didn't want to insult him going, oh, okay, you're going to kill a guy over some meat and and fruits and stuff. Here it is. No, you guys have earned this. This is your due pay. And here it is, David, for you to give to your other guys. She was very wise in that presentation. And then in verse 28, notice, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. Notice in your Bible, there's a period after that. Just please forgive me. I sin, please forgive me. Do you realize that 99% of people's life would rise to a thousand percent better quality if they could say that sentence? I have sinned, please forgive me. Try to say it. Try to say it. Go ahead. I have sinned. Please forgive me. Just stop right there. You see, people really do that. I have sinned. Please forgive me. But if you haven't started to begin with, we'd never be tired of discussing this. I have sinned. Please forgive me. But you've sinned a lot more than I ever did. Somehow, we, 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 we just can't leave it alone. I've got to let them know, I'm really right. You're much wronger than I am. We just can't stop there. When you look at the example of Jesus, he never declared his rights. He never tried to make it seem, I'm, I'm right and you guys are all wrong. When they defamed him and said all kinds of evil, he just walked away. He didn't try to declare it. But it's sin, it's pride and arrogance for us to try to make sure they know how wrong they are, how right we are. And although I'm apologizing, really it's your, the main problem here, you know, Even if you're right, and and it's true, 99% of the time it's all their fault. Yeah, I understand. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. You know, at the end of your life, all the times you were right aren't going to matter at all. If you think it's some big pot of gold over here, you're going to open it one day. I've been so right through the years, and my wife or my parents have been so wrong. You're going to open up that bag and see you've been packing sand the whole time. It's not going to be worth squat. But you know what's going to be valuable? Peace. You know what's going to be valuable? Just getting past it. What's it say to our, about our Lord? It's His loving kindness and tender mercies that what? Lead us to repentance. He just 
loves us and forgives us and is kind with us. And then we realize later down the road as we mature and begin to see things, oh man, I'm such an idiot. Oh God, you were so kind to me. You should have vaporized me. But instead you blessed me. In the same way in your relationships, if you'll just be loving and kind, and even though in your mind, and it's always in our mind, we're the ones that majorly got wrong, if you can forget it and let it go, you will find in time, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, they will come back and they will say, forgive me. I thought I was so right and I was in your face. Forgive me. I was so wrong. Guys, let it go. Just learn to say, I have sinned. Please forgive me. Nothing more. Walk away. Give them a big hug. Give them a big smile. It doesn't matter if you're right. It doesn't matter. Bring peace. Bring healing to the situation. And then in verse 28. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Listen to this. It's almost a word lost from our vocabulary. Affirmation. Affirming people who they desire to be and who you see they will be. Your name is Simon, but it's gonna, I'm going to call you Peter. Your name is Saul, but I'm going to call you Paul. I see something beyond what you see in yourself. And here she's making it clear to David... You are this amazing person that lives way up here. But my husband, as he does to a lot of people, brought you way down here. And you're looking nose to nose to a fool. This foolish man has brought you down to his level. That's not you. You're the guy whose house is going to endure forever. At this point, she's prophesying. At this point, she may not realize it, but in her affirmation, she's speaking of things that God's going to speak to David years later. In 1 Corinthians 14, 3, it says, And he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. You know, this is radical. Because in 1 Corinthians 14, the first verse says, Desire all the spiritual gifts, but especially that you would prophesy. You may be no prophet, but ask God to prophesy to your wife, to your husband, to your kids, to your friends. Even if it's once in your life, cry out to God. Desire the spiritual gifts, the gift of faith and of wisdom. But when it comes to your relationships, beg God for the gift of prophecy. That you might build them up, that you might comfort them, that you might speak into their life. Later on, David would say, I want to build a temple for God. And God said, you know... You can't build a house for me, but because that was in your heart, I'm going to build you an enduring house. Radical. Here she is, seeing things yet to come. And then notice what she says. You're a guy who always fights the battles of the Lord. What about this moment? (laughs) No way, he was totally in the flesh. And then she says, there's no evil ever found in you. Well, what about that moment? She's pointing out to David, this is who you are, man. You are a king. Don't act like a pauper. You are this righteous man. Don't act like this wicked man. You're this man who walks after the spirit and the will of God. Don't be this man in the flesh that I'm looking at right now. I can see it. 
God has awesome things in store for you. That's who I see you to be. You know, when you give people that vision of who you see them to be in that positive light, they'll start becoming that person. You'll discover that no one ever changes from the negative. You can bring people up to a zero through the negative. So if they're under the law, you can discipline them and spank them and point out the things they do wrong. And so we should. But it only brings them up to a big fat zero. Be people to change, you have to have a vision. They have to see where you see them and what God's plan is for them. Whether it's your spouse or your kids or your friends, prophesy, man. Speak what you see in their life in the future and how God's going to radically take them from where they're at and where they're going to be. What's Satan up to? He's lying. He's whispering in all our ears all the time, you're a big maggot, you're a big sinner, you're evil, you're wicked, you're, you're horrible, you're lazy, you're a procrastinator, you're dishonest, you're... And if you are saying those kind of things to one another, guess who you are? You're being demonically inspired. You're confirming what Satan's been saying to them. He's an accuser of the brethren. Don't you be that. Quite the opposite. Be on God's side. You know, it's very easy for us to be critical. You know, we start cutting each other down. We can do it for an hour. Okay, stop. I want you to write down five positive things about your spouse. I want you to write five positive things about your parents. Oh, man. Oh, this is hard. Oh, two and a half close enough, you know. It's just amazing how wickedness can just flow from us. But boy, try to get positive and there's just, boy, that's, I'm just having to totally put my, death, my flesh to death to come up with one spiritual positive thing. It shouldn't be that way. There shouldn't be salt water and fresh water coming out of the same tap. And so we see her speaking now. These high and lofty things. Not flattery. Your hair is as moonbeams and your eyes as glitter. Of, you know. We're not talking flattery here. We're talking genuine, real things about what I see God doing in your life and what you desire for yourself. You're going to get there. God's going to give you that desire of your heart. And to speak those positive affirmations to one another life so important. In verse 28, For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the, with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out, just like David slung the sling with Goliath, from the pocket of the sling. So right now, David, you are under a lot of pressure. You're under a lot of stress. You right now have this pressure of this guy trying to kill you, and now you have the responsibility of 600 men with you. And I don't really think you realize how much pressure this is. Interesting, after this, David freaks out. He says, Saul's going to be successful and kill me. i got to get out of the land of Israel. He goes down to the land of the Philistine, and he comes to the city where the king was, and he realizes, I'm a dead man. Do you know how many Philistines I have killed in my lifetime? And so David starts acting like a madman, slobbering and trying to climb up the gate of the city. And the king says, i got enough madmen in this city. Get out of here. Go down to the, give him the city of Ziglag. He acted like a total fool in fear. And she makes it clear here, Saul is not going to be successful. Any enemy that comes against you is not going to be successful. God 
prophesied through Samuel. He anointed you with oil and he said, you are going to be king. You're not going to die. Man's not going to have success in killing you, David. But David didn't take that affirmation. He didn't take that word. And we see him later making some really bad choices by not walking by faith, but walking by sight. But nevertheless, in verse 30, she goes on, And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. All the promises of God are what? Yea and amen. God's going to do it all, guys. And he has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you nor offensive of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or my Lord has avenged himself. I can see it as clear as day you're going to be a king in a castle. Right now, you're a runaway in a cave. I'm not going to look at that. David, right now, you may be running like a poor peasant boy, but you're not. You may be running like a fugitive, but you're not. And don't let man make you think lowly of yourself. Don't let Satan pound you that way. Put your chest out. Lift your head up. You are a king. And you are going to be in a palace. And you are going to rule. And all the promises of God are going to be yea and amen. And your life is going to be not in some death sentence, killed in some desert place by some king who's crazy trying to kill you. You are going to be a guy with the abundance of life. All of life is going to be bundled up and put unto you. And that's exactly the description Nathan has later. When David said, I want to build the temple, Nathan said, David, do all that's in your heart. Go for it, man. Just speak it out. When our lifers live that way, when we are walking as king's kids, we are his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his own special people called into himself. We're a kingdom of priests unto our God. We are kings and priests of our God. We need to realize that that who we are. One day we are going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. By faith he's given us of his righteousness. Don't let Satan or man say, you're a worm, you're a sinner. You're... Stand up, I have the righteousness of Christ. When somebody starts saying, you're this or you're that, saying, I am holy as God is holy. When you look in the mirror, you're not going to see that. But God has already promised it. That we will be seated together with him in heavenly places. And we need to stand up. And so when the world's being slimy around us, we're not sinking down to that level. When the world's being dishonest to get ahead, we're not going to go there. When the world is lying or cheating or being immoral, that we understand we have a high and holy calling that's been given to us by Christ Jesus. And that we're going to walk as the Lord would have us to walk. And just to realize, guys, that you have the power within you of life and death. You can kill people or you can build people up. You can use your words and set a field on fire or you can use your words and bring as a healing bomb to their heart. As Peter said, let all the words you speak be as it were the utterance of Christ. Ephesians 4 said, let all the words you speak be unto edification. And here we see with this prophetic voice, consolation, comfort, exhortation, building up David to be the man of God. 
And then she says that one day, when you are where God said He's going to take you, you're not grieved. You're not waking up in the middle of the night remembering as you're killing this 15-year-old boy. You're not listening to men defame you and your God because of an act you did 20 years earlier. And it's going to grieve you. Realize, man, it's going to catch up. Hey, guys. Guys, don't sin. Not because God's trying to make you some pious Puritan. Because sin destroys. Sin grieves. What happens in Las Vegas, what? It's a big lie. What's done in secret is shouted from the rooftops. The Lord says, your sin shall surely find you out. Guys, it's a lie from the pit of hell. One little sin, what's that going to matter? I remember listening to the James Dobson show, talking on this very topic. And he, there was a guy who decided on a business trip to cheat on his wife. And one time, and he woke up in the morning and the gal he met in the bar was gone. And she had written on lipstick on the mirror, Welcome to the world of AIDS. Another story he talked about a girl in her senior year of high school said, I'm tired of being constricted by my Christian parents. I'm going to go do what all the other kids in my class do for one time. The most popular kid in school wants to take me to the prom. And he picked her up in the limo and they went to the prom and she did all the stuff that all the people in the world do. And on the way home, she got her to taste some alcohol. And, and uh, when she began to be intoxicated, they had sexual relations. And that was it. She repented. She started going to college. In her sophomore year of college, she had this flu bug, and it just wouldn't go away, wouldn't go away, wouldn't go away. The parents finally took her to the doctor, and they said, you've got AIDS. She said, I've had sex once in my life. And she found that boy, and he said, I'm bisexual. And he was living at that time in a homosexual relationship. And one night, I just want one night (laughs) to not be constrained by God's principles. You know, sometimes you sow to the wind just a little tiny breeze, but it comes back as a tornado. I'm not saying it's always that way, but it can be. And David, for this, this right here is going to keep you awake the rest of your life. This right here is going to be a grief every single day of your life. And let me tell you, sin often is like that. And in verse 31, But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Now, this again is very inappropriate. By the way, I've got a good feeling I'm going to become available. And when I do, just remember how beautiful I am. And I feel an anointed wisdom today. Remember that. And come and sweep me off my feet. It was wrong. That was inappropriate. Maybe she was sensing that God was getting ready to deal with her husband for his foolishness. Or, as often in those days, he's an older rich man, 50 years older than her, and she's, you know, doing the math, figuring, hey, I'm still going to be pretty young when this guy kicks the bucket. I, I don't know. But either way, it was wrong for her to do this. And, uh, but it happened, and the Bible records it accurately. Well, there in verse 32, Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. 
For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me to meet me, surely my morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So maybe at this time she realizes, oh my goodness, I thought he was just going to kill Nabal. Um, this is far worse than I imagined. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I've heeded your voice and respected your person. You know, there's a lot of things about David that tells us he's a man after God's own heart. But I think one of the greatest things about David is he was so teachable. God help you if you ever stop being teachable. Whether you're 2 or 20 or 80, you need to remain with a teachable spirit. It says in Proverbs twelve fifteen, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. <clears throat> in Proverbs twenty six twelve, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for that man. Proverbs twenty nine twenty, Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Nabal didn't bring David just down to his level. He brought him below his level. David all of a sudden became this man hasty in his words. Strap on your swords, boys. We're going after him. He became worse than a fool. This man had brought him down to a low level. Guys, don't let man do that to you. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine last night, and he'd just come home from a funeral of a guy in his church. His brother was in a bar And some guy said something to him. They got in a fight, killed him. Here's one man going to prison. Here's another man dead. Don't don't let men bring you down to a foolish level. I'm going to teach that guy on the freeway for cutting me off. You might get shot. Or might get ran off the road. I'm going to go give my neighbor a peace of mind about that loud music of his. Yeah, it might be the end of your life, or you might end up in a confrontation you didn't wish you were in. Guys, don't be foolish. We're in the world. Don't be of it. Don't get caught in the, in the, the cloud of foolishness. And David did, and he realizes it, and he repents. He just says plainly, I've absolutely blown it, and man, you were there to confront me. Thank you. But yet, it had to be the teachable heart of David. And that day, women had no respect. And for a man to listen to a woman just did not happen. And so, for you and me, it would be like seeing somebody you have no respect for or regard for in the society, whoever that might be. That's who David was looking at. She, the women were invisible in that day. But yet, he listened to her, he respected her, he listened to her words, and it saved him great pain and anguish. Well, in verse 36, Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a kin, king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much, until morning life. You know, what a fool this guy is. He's feasting and partying with a, a heart with no concern. He just ticked off a guy with 600 soldiers who are all ruthless men, and he thinks no judgment's coming. That's the way the world is around us. Abigail here is a picture of Christ to us. It's as if she's a mediator between the just wrath of God and the sinner. 
The sinner has said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is going to be no day of judgment. I'm not going to have to stand before God for the wickedness I've done. And that's the world around us, eating and drinking and partying as if there's not going to be a day of judgment. And he had no idea that judgment was moments away if it wasn't for the intercessor. And Christ has come to intercede between the sinful man and the justice wrath of God. And here, man so often is ignorant of the judgment. And maybe that's you here today. You're living in sin and you know it and you're just, who cares? Your parents or your husband, your wife or a friend of yours is telling you, your flesh is getting the better, you stop. And your flesh is just, ah, whether it's lust or covetousness or anger. You're just, your flesh is screaming and you're like, I listen to you, I don't disagree with you, but my flesh being gratified right now is going to be worth it. Guys, it'll never be worth it. It'll never be worth it. You need to stop right now and realize that God's going to bring everything you said and everything you've done into judgment. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you haven't been walking with him and walking in obedience with him. It's a scary thing. And God today is here warning you, telling you to repent why you can, why you have a tender heart. The Bible tells us eventually man's heart will be, it's too hard to ever repent. And hopefully you're not at that place. Well, in verse 37, So in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, his hangover is pretty much gone, he's had his six cup of black coffee there, his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So he realized, judgment was ready to fall upon me. And I was not even slightly aware of it. And it gave him a heart attack. Now, physically, you say, well, he had a heart attack. That's what the doctor would have said, probably. But spiritually, we know. It was this awesome fear of God that came upon him. And after 10 days, maybe God in his grace giving him time to repent. And there in that vegetative state, he repented. There in that place of of not being able to talk, but yet still alive, is where he came to a repentance. And that was the grace of God upon him. We don't know. But then the Lord killed him. He died. Guys, get it. This is a very, very, very important point. In Romans 12, it says this in verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourself. Notice who he's talking to. The children of God. Believers. Beloved. We as Christian believers, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is what? Mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And here, what do we see? God did it. God's willing to sign it. He put it in writing and he signed it. (laughs) I will repay. Guys, do you get it? His word is true. Now, we're not going to win all the battles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We're not going to win all the battles. You may unrightly being sued in court and you lose the court. You may be unrighteously being fired from your job and you get fired. But as believers, we know that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called or walking in that place according to his purposes. We're going to lose some battles, but we win the war. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will deliver us out of them all. But each of them are a test along the way. 
of how you're going to be, how you're going to respond and to see what you do. And we need to remember that we need to love our enemies, pray for them, bless them, do good to them. And if they don't repent, I hope they do, but if they don't, God will repay. And he'll do it with a very precise target. David was going to slaughter all these innocent people, probably didn't even know that Nabal had said that to David. Here I was, I just, I'm a neighbor of his, I just hopped over the fence and came to eat some lamb chops, and the next thing I know, 400 guys show up and start killing me. I, I, I had no idea what was going on. Nabal talked to David, I didn't even know. David's just judgment would have been wrong, and our judgment, guys, 99% of the time would be wrong. God's judgment is always pure and righteous and correct. And we are to leave it in his hands, never to take it into our hands. Well, finishing up, verses 39 to 44. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal. We're never to rejoice in the death of the wicked like that. That's wrong. David shouldn't have done that. And he kept his hand from evil. So blessed be the Lord that he's taken vengeance on my enemies and that I didn't. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And if David shouldn't have been so surprised at this, he should have believed in the word of the Lord to begin with. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Uh, not, not a very romantic proposal, was it? Um, some scruffy looking guys who came out of a cave going, hey, you want to marry him? Um, Anyway, hope, I hope you guys can do better than that. In verse 31, Then she arose and bowed her face to the earth and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. I'm not worthy to be his wife. I'll just be a servant, the lowliest of servants. Beautiful spirit. And in verse 42, So Abigail rose in haste and rode on the donkey, attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam, of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, that was his first wife, so three wives total now, the son of Laish, who was of Gilliam. Um, so you say, hold it here. Righteous David had more than one wife. I don't get it. Well, understand this. At this point in history, the law did not forbid having more than one wife. As a matter of fact, it gave very specific instructions how to have more than one wife. Not that God wanted it, but God was monitoring it. God was controlling it. And basically, the wife that was less loved, her kids got everything. So the time you get to the time of Christ, they didn't do it anymore because it wasn't worth it. But had David gone back and looked at the beginning, and the beginning was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve's. He would have known God's original design. But let me also tell you something. The farther you get away from God's will, whether it's a clear rule or clear law or not, the less quality of life you have. People say, well, why are we putting the Judeo-Christian ethic on the rest of the world? You know, in some parts of the world, the women run around topless and it's absolutely okay. Over in Papua New Guinea, all those jungle people, they run around naked and it's perfectly fine. They don't even, the guys don't even pay attention to it. It's not even a problem with it. Well, do you want to go live in Papua New Guinea? No, you don't. The quality of their life is not very good. The fact of the matter is, is the closer you get to living in the Jado Christian ethic, 
the more blessed the society is. We have a fence over here between us and Mexico, not because people are trying to get into Mexico. Our country for years was living very close to the Geo-Christian ethic. And our country has seen a prosperity that no country in all of history has ever seen. But now, since about the 20s and then 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, big time, we've been quickly going away from the Judeo-Christian ethic. Look at the quality of our country between then and now. There was a time when every mom could stay home with the kids. There was a time when even the lowliest of jobs could feed and clothe and house your family with no problem. Now we have to have at least two incomes and scrap and fight just to try to make ends meet. The quality of the family has gone down. Safety. You look back before the Judeo-Christian ethic was being ignored. Kids could walk the streets of any place almost in America in total safety. So, yeah, the closer you are, the better. Look at David's life. All the kids of all the various wives, he ended up having about a dozen wives, they all fought each other. And they all killed each other and raped each other. And it was a horrible thing. David's here in having more than wife, one wife sowed the seed of the destruction of his family. Yes, he did it. Yes, it was permitted. But also in Deuteronomy 17, it said, Tell the king he can't multiply horses, gold and silver, or wives to himself, lest his heart be turned away from me. And David here had more than one wife. He didn't turn his heart away, but his son Solomon said, Well, if my dad can have more than one wife, I might as well have 700 of them and 300 concubines. And it tells us that Solomon, the wisest man that ever walked the face of this earth, may be in hell today because it said all his wives in his old age turned his heart away from the Lord and turned them towards and then a list of the pagan gods that God had kicked out the people who were worshiping those gods out of the promised land. And so, again, the Bible records accurately. It doesn't necessarily say every time God disapproves, he disapproves. But when we look at the entirety of Scripture, we see the heart of God, and we see that David didn't meet the heart of God here, and then we see the quality of life that he did or didn't have from making that choice, which was a very, very poor uh, life that he ended up having a lot of grief at the end of his days because of that very thing. Let's all bow our heads this morning. There's many things the Lord's been speaking to us today on these issues. There's some of you here today that God's speaking about Abigail. You've been walking in foolishness like a Nabal. You haven't been walking in wisdom. There's some of you, like David, you haven't had a teachable spirit. And it's causing you a lot of grief and a lot of pain. There's some of you here today that if God has brought because he wants you to be saved. And your heart's been crying out, I want to be right with God. I want my sins forgiven. I want the guilt of my sin taken away. I want my name written in the book of life. And I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. God's here to meet you today wherever you're at. First, I'd like to address, if you're here today saying, that's me. I've come here today because I need to be saved. I want my sins taken away. I want my name written in the book of life. I want to know that I'm going to heaven if I were to die today or the Lord was to return. Just lift your hand up high right now, if you would. That's me. Just keep it up high there for a minute. Just keep it up. Christ hung on a cross for hours. Just, I know it's a little painful to keep your hand up, but please do. 
There's some, there's many raising their hands. Is there any others? Just lift your hand right now. I'm here to repent today. I don't care what my family thinks. God bless you. I don't care what my friends from school think. I don't care what that guy on the other side from work thinks. I don't care what anybody thinks. You're amongst the family here. At one point, we've all lifted our hands. At one point, we've all made that statement to get right with God. You're amongst friends here. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be shy. I want to be forgiven. God bless you. I want my sins forgiven. I want to be right with God. If you're here today and you've been walking in a backslidden, foolish condition, making a lot of wrong choices, and your heart isn't where it needs to be, you've received the Lord at one time, but you're not walking in obedience. And you're saying, I need today to be that point in time that I return to God and and repent and come back to Him. Just lift your hand right now if you would. Just lift it up. I repent. I'm coming back today. I want to be right with God once again. Just lift your hands up, yes. I'm going to ask that all you lifting your hands, just stand right now where you're at. I want to pray for you. Just humble yourself. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. Many others raise their hands. Just lift, just stand up right now. Look at around. There's, be bold. There's people that are also standing. Just stand right now, saying it's me. Just go ahead. Be brave. Lord, touch these hearts, Lord, that are just humbly saying they need you. You said you're rich to all who call upon your name as their hearts are crying out to you. Meet them right now, Lord. I'm going to ask those who are standing just to go ahead and leave your seat and come up and stand right here. As you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, then he can lift you up. And just, you're amongst family and friends, just come on out right now and come and stand right here. There's others that lifted their hands that didn't stand, but this is your opportunity. I'm going to ask everybody to stand right now. If you need to make your way here, let this be your time right now. Come right now. Make your way right now. I'd ask that the elders and leaders and their wives come on down to pray with these. Come right now. Thank you, Lord, for touching so many hearts, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. So precious. We're going to sing this one time through, and this is your opportunity. If you've not yet made your stand, come right now. God's knocking on the door of your heart. Don't, don't resist Him. Just open that door and make your your life become right with him today by receiving him and getting things right. We're going to sing it through one time. This is it. Make your way right now. Just as I am without one plea but that Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. this heart right here. Just come on down right here. There's others right now. Make your way. Come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Lord, thank you for touching these hearts today, Lord. Thank you for drawing them to yourself. We know all of heaven is rejoicing, and we know your pen's out, and you're writing down these names. Sealed for all of eternity, we thank you, God. God's looking upon your heart here this morning, and He's looking at the humbleness. He's looking at the preciousness of it. And all you have to do is cry out to him. No special words. But I know years back I was in this place and I didn't know what to pray. And somebody helped me and I was so appreciative. And I'm going to pray a prayer that a suggested prayer. Just let it express the attitude of your heart. And God will receive you. Let's all as a church family this morning, every one of us pray this prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. But I know you love me. And I know that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on a cross and by his blood to forgive my sin and by his resurrection 
to give me the power over sin. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Be my Lord. Be my God. Be my Savior. I fully submit myself to you. From this day forward, my life is in your hands. It's about your will. In Jesus' name. Lord, bless all who heard your word in truth today and cause great maturity, great healing, great strengthening, great rejoicing. And we thank you, God, for the great work you've done in us and through us today. Let this word go out and not return void, but accomplish all that it was sent out to do. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Those who came forward, just another minute of your time. The rest of you, hey, turn to somebody around you, introduce yourself, and ask them, what's one thing I can pray for you for the rest of this week? I can't encourage you enough to come back tonight. Get more of the word. We have a special band playing tonight as well. And then also a time just uh, of seeking God and prayer. God bless you.